0: Romans are done for us. hello and thanks for downloading I'm ancient blogger and you are listening to my podcast of the final Troy fall of a city show where I pick out what I find interesting and unwrap it a little in the UK a new Troy episode has aired each Saturday but I understand that it's now on Netflix so I suspect There's been some binge-watching going on. If you're new to this, then firstly, hello. And secondly, make sure you listen to my other podcasts as well. Predicting the events in a last episode of a series titled Troy, Fall of a City, isn't the hardest thing to do, even more or less given it's about Troy, which is famous for being vulnerable to wooden horses and for being, well, sacked. As for the wooden horse, don't worry, we'll get to that later. In this podcast... I'll be taking the interesting themes and incidents from the show and looking a bit more deeply at them. Given the content of the show, this will involve the horse, the sack of Troy, and what went on after. As ever, I'll have plenty of puns and tangents prepared, so expect to hear about awful dinner stories, how not to exit a wooden horse, and whether anyone described Hector's son as a bouncing baby boy. Too soon? Well, I'm not about to have standards now, am I? The Iliad ends with the return of Hector's body and his funeral. The events which followed are denied a central story, and instead we have a menagerie of myths leading up to the obvious solution of a wooden horse. These myths seem to have formed a, a bit of a checklist for the Greeks to cross off. For example, Calchas the seer demanded the bow of Hercules. This is owned by Philoctetes, a famed Greek archer who had been bitten by a snake. The bite, on his heel of all places, or, or his foot, festered and the constant wailing of Philoctetes caused the Greeks to abandon him on an island. Getting Philoctetes back on board, pun intended, forms the backdrop of the surviving play titled Philoctetes by Sophocles, which deals with winning Philoctetes back round. The Greeks were also required to steal the Palladium. This is a statue of Athena within Troy. Mythic accounts differ, but either Odysseus went alone or Diomedes joined him. Next up was a requirement for Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles, to join them. Neoptolemus is mentioned in Sophocles' play about Philoctetes. He's a main character, so perhaps this happened earlier, but as these myths weren't standardised, it can be difficult getting them in a bit of order. Finally, the bones of Pelops were demanded. Pelops had an interesting childhood. Having been cut into pieces by his father and served the Olympian gods in a stew, he was put back together, thankfully. One of his sons was Atreus, who was the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus, Proving that he was a chip off the old block in more ways than one, Aetius killed the sons of his brother, Thystes, and served them to him. You see, fad diets were very different back then. The purpose of these myths doesn't seem that obvious, and perhaps we miss the exact point to them. At best, they seem inserted, or attached, or associated, for no reason other than simply being part of the overall myth of Troy. It's as if a very popular and famous story has had several sort of spin-offs with franchise stories involving a couple of main characters just to keep it relevant. Nothing new with this then. With these tasks undertaken, we can move to the famous wooden horse. Exactly why a horse was needed to sneak into Troy isn't exactly clear. The show had heroes in and out of Troy seemingly at whim. If Achilles can get in them, why not have him clear out the guards and open the gates? Apart from the fact that the story wouldn't have been so grand, it would also have put the arts and crafts department of the Greek camp out of a job, as the show gave us a horse which was, well, well, you've seen it. When it first appeared, I wondered if the Greeks had just given up, and in their place the Sundance Festival had moved in. It also seemed to have a trident on its head, which would make it a unicorn, and thus less of a wooden horse, and more of a woke one. Uh, Okay, I'll stop. But what was the deal with the horse? The question, what was the wooden horse? has confounded and confused for millennia. Perhaps the question should be, why was the wooden horse as opposed to what? When we consider it in this context, a different perspective is gained. Why indeed? Well, to start with, it makes an incredibly good part of the story and proof of it is that it's known about even today. I'd say that when you think of Troy, the wooden horse is one of the standout aspects. In a society in which oral history and poems were a main source of entertainment, it offers a fantastic narrative feature. To test this, Just consider a different ending. Imagine the sack of Troy being facilitated by a dash-up-some-ladders to the walls, or Troy surrendering. Neither carries anything near the drama. It's more of an extension of what has been occurring throughout the Iliad and beyond. In fact, the Iliad demands a fantastic or novel solution to the problem. In the sphere of combat, both sides have had their moments, but neither has made the breakthrough. Plus, it's been ten years or so. Something very different can realistically be the only solution needed or available to them, and you don't get very different more than a large wooden horse. Though it lacked comfy seating or Wi-Fi, the horse is a perfect vehicle for a storyteller or myth with which to introduce drama and suspense. When it's left for the Trojans, the dramatic irony builds. Cassandra and Leocoon both denounce it as a trick, and thus the Greeks are almost discovered straight away. The tension builds further, as just when you think the Greeks are safe and wait hidden whilst the Trojans party all night, along comes Helen to tease them by impersonating their wives in order that they might shout back. The motivation for this must be purely to raise the drama even more. In several myths, Helen is shown as working with the Greeks in order to either return to them or aid them in some way. Why then have her trying to undo all her good work unless it was purely a narrative device to crank up the tension? The tale of the horse is mentioned by Homer in the Odyssey, in Book 4, when Telemachus visits Melelaus, and the drama of it is the reason for its introduction. Odysseus is praised, because he was able to keep the men quiet as Helen impersonated their wives from outside. Here, Melelaus was keeping the tradition of awkward family dinner moments alive. True, he hadn't killed and cooked anyone, but telling a story which revolves around your adulterous wife trying to trick the men you were fighting with can't have exactly made things easy on those listening. I anticipate an eye roll from Helen, or at the very least, a, uh, here he goes again, muttered under her breath. The wooden horse also fits perfectly in a theme set up by the Iliad, that of deception. Cunning and general cheating abounds in the Iliad, so why shouldn't the solution to the problem of Troy be found within this scope of behaviour, or misbehaviour? You might be thinking, really? The Iliad contains a lot of painful death and confrontation. Where's the deception? Well, I made a quick list. I'm sure there's more, there's probably quite a few you can think of, but here are the examples that I came up with. To start with, there's the famous night raid conducted by both Odysseus and Diomedes, where the two heroically butcher a number of the enemy while sleeping. On a more personal level, assuming you can get more personal than knifing someone mid-dream, is Hera's seduction of Zeus, in order that the gods can interfere behind his back. In fact, the gods have a few moments of deception. Paris is saved by Aphrodite in his duel with Menelaus, the Goddess of Love creates a cloud of mist to cover the retreat. Athena assumes the guise of two mortals. She appears as Laodocus to convince Pandarus to loosen arrow at just after the duel which will break the truce. Much later, Athena appears beside Hector as Deophobus. This is a truly fiendish deception as Hector, in his moment of need, turns to receive another spear to use against Achilles, only to grasp clean air. Back to the heroes. What's more deceptive than Patroclus turning out in Achilles' armour? Of course, Patroclus pays the ultimate price, unlike Antilochus, who simply gives back the price he won in the chariot race after using a deceptive ruse to get past the chariot of Menelaus. The wooden horse gave the myth the required fantastic solution, with plenty of drama, but also carried the motif of deception. At this point, I think it's worth mentioning the practical influences on the use of the horse as a solution to Troy. In an earlier Troy podcast, I sketched out how Greeks of Homer's time and later to the classical period, use the weighted-out style of siege. Simply surround the town or city and strangle it into submission. Of course, this had a number of drawbacks, but siege machines required full-time technical experts and the sorts of resources the Greeks weren't used to employing, at least not until the Hellenistic period. That's not to say that siegecraft wasn't practiced elsewhere. The Assyrians of the 8th and 7th centuries BC used covered battering rams to overcome fortifications. Depictions of these are numerous and often have something of the Dalek about them. They seem to follow a common design, a wheeled cart covered with a ram or point sticking out. Sometimes this point is angled up, and experts suggest that this was a far more effective angle of attack against walls formed of brick and clay. Other reliefs show them going up ramps to attack the battlements directly. They would have needed men to operate them, and presumably then to rush out onto the breach they made. If we didn't have the story from Menelaus, where it is made implicit that the men are hidden in the horse, which has been brought into Troy, then you could knit together a sort of argument to suggest that the horse may have been a battering ram. After all, here you have individuals in a wheeled vehicle breaching the walls. And though Assyria didn't neighbour the Greek culture directly, the Aegean and Mediterranean was a cultural grapevine. It's highly probable that their famed siege engines would have been known outside of Assyria. We cannot fully appreciate to what extent the Greek audience believed the tale of the horse, That stood out to us, but that doesn't mean the Greeks listening to the stories thought of it as a defining feature of the wider myth of Troy's fall. If they did, why would they think of it as more believable than, say, a talking horse? Or a a king capable of 50 plus sons and daughters? Pausanias, writing in the 2nd century AD, suggested that the Greeks got into Troy by a postern gate, which is nicknamed the horse. Indeed, Pausanias was quite scathing about anyone who believed in the horse as a real, existing thing. In many ways, we share the ability to spend our disbelief on watching films or reading books. What may have been more important to an audience nearer the time was that Troy's fate had been decided, that God's will must be done, and that the horse was merely an entertaining way of facilitating this. What was certain and relevant to the Greek audience was the horse as a divine or sacrosanct image. According to myth, the horse had lettering on it dedicating it to Athena, which immediately places it into the religious context. Here we also meet a cultural difference between the modern audience and the Greek one. The logic that the horse, being a religious offering, must be brought into the city doesn't exactly chime with us. The connection fails. In the show, they attempted to help explain this by having the horse apparently filled with grain, and given how the people of Troy were starving, taking it into Troy was an opportunity to restock dwindling stores. In the myths, there's no grain because taking the horse into the city was more obvious, even though it seems puzzling to us. For example, the Great Dionysus, the famous Athenian dramatic festival, featured a statue of Dionysus being brought into the city through a procession. Likewise, the Panathenaic Games, where it was a wooden ship on wheels that was rolled along the processional route. It's arguable that this type of bringing votive images into the city was something which had occurred in Homer's time and was easily recognisable as a practice in the later classical period. With the horse safely ensconced and the Trojans feasting, we have something of an idea of what happened next. Depending on which myth you read, there were a different number of heroes awaiting the time to jump into action. One Greek, Echion, Echion, did just that, but fell and broke his neck. The rest of the heroes, in a far more sensible manner, used the rope ladder. What followed may well have been a template for many who were unfortunate enough to be on the wrong end of a siege. The heroes let the rest of the Greeks in who had sailed back and they sacked the city. In the absence of siege technology, the archaic and even classical Greeks much preferred what we might term covert operations, either get men into the city to open the gates or have friends already on the inside. In the classical period, this seems to have been the go-to option, and bearing in mind that the city-states often had an unhappy party, faction or two, around, the opportunity for this was always there. A good example can be seen in 431 BC at Plataea, a city located in mainland Greece. Thebes was its main rival, and a pro-Theban party there sneaked 300 soldiers in under the cover of darkness. The idea was simple. The Theban soldiers would take control and secure Plataea until reinforcements arrived. The Theban soldiers were too slow to act, and soon news spread. Panicking, the Theban soldiers were attacked on all sides. Few of them made it out alive, and this gives an interesting perspective on the dangers of sacking a city or trying to take one. Once inside, the attack has unfamiliar streets to navigate, and whilst doing so is being pelted from above by locals on rooftops. This is how Pyrrhus, the famous general, was said to have met his end, by a a tile that had been thrown from a roof. According to the myths, the sack of Troy was brutal. Priam was dragged from an altar by a Neoptolemus and butchered, his body then left to rot by the tomb of Achilles. In some myths, Cassandra was raped whilst claiming sanctuary in Athena's temple. The Greeks, who at least in the Iliad come across as a pious bunch, have seemingly abandoned their religious scruples and behave in a way which feels incredibly un-Greek. And there was also the incident involving Astanax, Hector's son. In the myths, Calchas had indicated that he would avenge his city and father. The unthinkable was done, in one story by Odysseus, who dropped him from the battlements. In another myth, Neoptolemus, who increasingly comes across as a really nasty piece of work, whirls him around by the feet and throws him from the walls. Hecuba is given to Odysseus as a prize. She is taken to Thrace, where she continues to slander him, leading to her being killed. Exactly how this fits into the Odyssey is a good example of how the Greek myths weren't hostage to continuity. When she was killed, her spirit allegedly took the form of a black dog and swam away. Of the other notable women, Cassandra is given to Agamemnon to take back as a concubine. Andromache finds herself given to Neoptonomus, but the fate of Polyxena, a daughter of Priam, combines pity and curiosity in equal measure. I mentioned last week that Polyxena was given as a love interest for Achilles. It's not in the Iliad, but at some point, presumably after the death of Patroclus, marriage between the two was seen as part of a truce. In reality, it was a ruse. Once Polyxena found out Achilles' vulnerable heel, she spilled the beans. And in one account of Achilles' death, this results from an ambush, with Paris firing a poisoned arrow at his heel. From beyond the grave, Achilles demands her sacrifice. In other myths, it's purely because he wants a trophy or to be honoured. Last week, I listed some of the taboos and unsavoury incidents which Achilles had been involved with. So, let's have a recap. Prior to the Iliad, he chased and killed Troilus, a Trojan prince who was still a youth and brother to Polyxena. Though Troilus claimed sanctuary in a temple, Achilles butchered him, and this tale was received in antiquity as a very disagreeable one and as a sort of worst-case scenario and horrors of war context. In the Iliad, he despoils the body of Hector, he states that he'd actually Hector Roar if he fancied it. He also sacrifices 12 Trojan princes at Patroclus' funeral. Yet here is Achilles again, reaching out from beyond the grave for more blood. Euripides made The Fate of the Trojan Nobleman the plot of a play performed in 415 BC and entitled The Trojan Women or Women of Troy. The play starts with Poseidon describing the sack of Troy. He mentions the body of Priam on the steps of Zeus's altar, the abduction of Cassandra. Poseidon comments that the sacred groves are deserted, the temples run with blood. Athena then joins him. The two were opponents during the war. Athena backed the Greeks and Poseidon backed Troy. Yet here Athena approaches Poseidon and complains about the brutality of her own side, which seems to catch Poseidon a bit off guard. In particular, The treatment of Cassandra at Athena's temple, where she really should have expected Sanctuary, has gotten under Athena's skin, really, really annoyed her, though I sense the wider behaviour of the Greeks didn't exactly help. She appeals to Poseidon for assistance, and Poseidon is shocked, but all too happy. In a moment best envisaged in the style of a mafia meeting, she is asked by Poseidon what her plan is. Athena replies, I mean to make their homeward journey unfortunate. Of course, the Greek most famous for finding travel home difficult was Odysseus, who was helped in his return continually by, well, Athena. Proof that deities have double standards as well. As often with Greek tragedy, here was a play soaked with political relevance, as Athens had recently demanded that Melos, a neutral city-state, surrender to her. Thucydides, the historian, paints the episode in grim colours. Athens is the bully and decides might is right. And when Athens took Melos, the outcome wasn't dissimilar to Troy, any male of military age was killed, and the women and children were sold into slavery. The Greek myths are a rich resource to mine for contemporary comment, and here we have Euripides taking the opportunity to adapt the themes from the fall of Troy and the consequences into a play with political traction in his time. Ironically, this play of Euripides has itself been used to comment on situations in more modern times, and perhaps that's why Troy is such a long-lasting and surviving myth, in part because it's a fantastic tale but because it has motives and aspects to it which are, well, universal. And, uh, well, there's the horse, of course. Well, there we have it. It's been literally epic, and having a weekly deadline has certainly honed my podcasting. Or not. It's definitely got me used to making short podcasts, that's for sure. Added to this, I've got the taste for them. You can listen to some of my earlier stuff, but I will be writing some more stuff soon, and podcasting more regularly, so check wherever you do to keep updated. Before you leave, please give this a rating on iTunes if you can. It really helps. And visit my blog, ancientblogger.com, as well as say hi to me on Twitter, at ancientblogger. Thanks again for listening. I hope you found some of the things, some of the themes and some of the aspects interesting, entertaining, or even all of them. Till the next time, keep safe and stay well. In for me! me! They've all got it in for me!